Yo, yo, yo. Welcome back to Techish. Techish! Michael and Abadesi are taking a breather this week. So this week, we have some clips that were originally showcased to our Patreon subscribers via our paid podcast, Extra-ish, earlier this year. It's all centered around the theme of careers. How do I know what career to pivot to? Will I have more than one career over my life? And how do I stop employees abusing the fact that I work remotely? If you want more of this exclusive content, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon for as little as $5 a month. Head over to patreon.com slash techish. So we got an audience from one of our Patreon subscribers. Uh, I'll try to abbreviate it. Love what you do and I have been binge listening to the podcast all day. I read Abadesi's book and I'm just really happy to have found your platform now. Shout out to Abadesi's book. Um, I'm based in SF, California and I have a question. I'm currently furloughed from my job. I work in the fashion industry and before that the startup sector, I'm managing an accelerator program. I'm currently making the move back into tech and startup culture, but I'm a bit worried about the future job security for the part of the industry I hope to get into. I hope to get into UX product design. And from everything I read, it seems like a safe field. But a lot of places are recommending getting some front uh, front end dev experience. And I'm wondering what tech jobs will be most in demand after this, or what good skills to look for and to hone right now to make myself more competitive. What do you think, Abba? Ooh, Tough one, isn't it? That's a that's a great question, actually, because yeah. there's so many things that I want to uh, unpack in it. So this is someone who's obviously trying to mitigate risk. And this is someone who's risk averse and saying, I want to go into a stable industry. Now, I want to start out by saying this. If you work in startups, it is an inherently risky industry. If you want a career free of risk, do not work in startups. Okay, that that's just the nature of the game, because we know that startups are effectively testing. They're an experiment lab. You know, that's really what a startup is. Mm -hmm. It's not your FTSE 100 company. Um, It's not an accounting firm. It's an experiment. It's volatile and it's subject to change. And there's nothing that can be predicted about the future, except that it's unpredictable. And I'm reflecting on this as someone that has been working in startups for many years. I've seen people laid off. I've laid people off. I've been laid off. My role has been chopped and chained. (laughs) And I have been in like super reliable, pretty constant roles like business development, marketing, partnerships, you know, revenue generating kind of stuff. So what I want to say to the sister first and foremost is startups are always going to be risky, but you're not working in startups because you want a safe bet, are you? You're working in startups because you want to build the future. Mm. You want to do UX product design. That's incredible. Mm. You know, you want to make sure that everything that the product does speaks to the user's needs. And that's really admirable and commendable. So what I'm going to say is you should absolutely pursue this career change. And you are going to thrive, be fulfilled, and be happy, not at a company that you have done the due diligence has, you know, the most amount of funding and most likely to have the longest runway. Therefore you will be successful there. No, that's not how it works. You're going to be most fulfilled at a company whose values align with your own, where you're surrounded by people you vibe with, where you can build great products together. So I really, really encourage people to assess companies, not only for the long-term security, but almost more importantly, especially I'm speaking for myself here, based on the values of the company and the individuals and because you could have a job in UX product design at one company for the next 15 years uninterrupted, but it could be really boring or the people might not vibe with you or you might not be solving problems that you care about. So, you know, of course, in this climate, we're all worried about security. But the thing is, we can't guarantee security. You know, you can go work at Amazon, Google, you can still get laid off, right? So, or, 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 the, or the team might just, oh, we decided we're not launching this anymore. Boom, it's folding up, it's wrapping up. So don't make decisions out of fear. Like make decisions... 
out of your motivations. That's how we build successful careers. And you know, success is very subjective, success is very personal, but I just really want to urge you, speak to people in that role, as well as engineers, as well as community people at companies that are working on problems you're interested in, or where the founders espouse the values that you believe in, and then go work at that company, even if there's no guarantee of long-term security, because you're going to enjoy it, you're going to thrive. And with each job you do, you're going to grow. Yeah, I think you said a lot of great stuff there. I definitely agree about speaking to people who, you know, are in your job role. Um, the thing about product design is that like, you're, it's very, there's going to be job security for people that are really good at their job. So if you're a product designer and you can produce like, and just being frank, you can produce like nine out of 10 work. There's always going to be job security for you. Like now, whether you're at that nine out of 10 level, you have to be frank and transparent with yourself and be like, yo, I need to level up. Do product designers need to know some code? That's the thing. <sighs> yeah, I think CSS. The industry is forever shifting. Hard. I do I, think it is helpful to know. Yeah, I, I, I think, think so. I think it's, it's, you do need to, it would be great for your career if you did know like some rudimentary front end stuff, like some JavaScript, some, maybe some React, um, uh, and that will help you. But first and foremost, if you are really great at product design, you will be fine. You have to be honest with yourself and say, are you really great right now? If not, like yeah. put the work in, build up your portfolio, right? And you'll do great. Like that's, that's it. I, exactly. I have heard it said that I don't know if it holds true now, but a six out of 10 developer will have job security, but a six out of 10 UI UX person won't have job security. I mean, I hate to add to give, like to add credence to this whole concept of giving people numbers like for their job skills, but I'm just going to be raw and blunt. What do you think about that? Do you think there's some, there's a truism to that? That like a developer who's like six out of 10, just because of the scarcity of developers will have more job security than a person who can do UI UX, but they're not really the best. Uh, I mean... I don't know. I think the problem is, not sure. is I think the problem is not necessarily just strictly just supply and demand. It's also the fact that if you're an engineer, people have like a very specific need usually where it's just like I need someone who can code yeah. in this language to develop this. Whereas within UI and UX, it, like there are a few nebulous roles. Like there are some people that are only researchers. So they never touch sketch, they never touch Figma, yeah. they never do any of that. There are some people that are researchers as well as actual designers. And then there are some people that are researchers, designers, and they can do some front end. So not only can they do the prototypes and the mock-ups, if you actually need them to like start building a page or a product, they can do that mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like, maybe it's more the fact that, you know, a six out of 10 engineer can still write and then deploy code. Whereas like a six out of 10 UX UI professional that doesn't guarantee me like what actual output they can make. Because what if you're just focused solely on, on the right. research piece and not necessarily on the coding piece? One thing I will say though, is like the more conversations this individual has with people who design stuff as well as engineers and stuff like that, the more confident they're going to feel about whether or not they want to do coding because I think people should make these decisions also based on what they want and what they're interested in. Like there are some amazing mm. product designers yeah, out true. there. You open up terminal and they're going to be like, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at. Right. And there are also some, yeah, some who taught themselves how to code. They're really, really good, but they're not good product designers. Like they're very good, you know, but they're, they're very good engineers, but they're not very good product designers. So I feel like for me, it's like as someone that's being a product manager, like at Product Hunt, we're working very small teams. So it's basically an engineer, product designer, and a community person. As someone that's been really involved in like mm -hmm. developing and shipping products, like I was never really that interested in finding out, you know, more about the engineering side. I wanted to understand the challenges that the engineers face, but for me, it was enough for them to explain an issue and then me to try and, and troubleshoot it. In a similar way, I never felt 
compelled to understand how Sketcher Figma works, but it was helpful for me just to kind of like empathize with what the designers were going through. Now, another person in my shoes might be like, okay, I want to go a bit deeper now. Like, I want to understand why when you ship this code, the buttons are like way more spaced out than they were in our designs. This episode is sponsored by Thinkful. Thinkful is a new type of school that brings high growth tech careers to ambitious people everywhere. The company provides one-on-one learning through its network of industry experts, hiring partners, and online platforms to deliver a structured and flexible education. They are hiring for a remote growth product manager. You will determine, create, and message the experience that drives all student enrollments. Apply on pocketjobs.com. That's P-O-C-I-T jobs.com. Link is in the show notes. I read an article in Harvard Business Review. It was trending across social media and LinkedIn, all about why you should have at least two careers. Uh, And the author of the article has a corporate job as well as a more creative job producing music. Um, And they've actually even won some Grammy Awards, which is pretty crazy. Damn. Yeah. Uh, But in the article, he just says, you know, for a number of reasons, one, you get to expand your network and meet people maybe from different communities or different backgrounds than you would if you were just in kind of one stream of work or one vertical Of Mm -hmm. course, there's the things that we've spoken about before in terms of diversifying your income and stuff like that. But I just wanted to Mm -hmm. ask you, do you think that the idea of having a single career is going to go extinct? I definitely think the idea of having one job's gone extinct for your whole career because that actually was a lot more common back in the day. Having multiple careers, I believe so. I think I've already had about three or four of them so far, to be honest. Like, I don't really write that much code anymore and i started off as a software engineer now i'm basically a founder kind of executive type person and a podcaster i didn't know i had no idea this was ever going to happen where i would be you know so front-facing um in general yeah absolutely and i think i got this from yuval harari he basically said like listen the people that will win the future are the ones that are you know adaptable to change and are willing to kind of go with it and see what works um also the reality about side hustles is i've got a very like love-hate relationship with side hustles i feel like they probably are necessary and that's probably because you're not gonna have the job security of the past and you're not gonna be able to earn as much as you want the way somebody else might have in your position 20 30 years ago mm. so you probably it's best to have it right so there's a lot of economic factors that have led to that but yeah i think we all will have multiple um careers and i think it's a blessing to a certain extent because so often when you're young, you're afraid of going down a career path because you're afraid of be- being like locked in. Like, oh, I'm 20. I don't know if I really want to be a software engineer. Yeah. I don't know if I really want to be, you know, a doctor, for example. And I know a- I've met doctors who are like halfway through. They're like, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I want to do X. And they've managed to find a way to become X. So it's a good thing. I think human beings are very complicated people and, and creatures. We're-, we're able to do multiple things. It's good that we're not going to be locked down into one career track for our whole lives, you know? So I mean, you speak on it because you're actually somebody who probably has also had multiple careers. Like, I, since I've known you, you've done like so many different job roles and like <laughs> Just manager to to like <laughs> Yeah, like so. What do you think? Like, does it I obviously think, rings true to you. I I I think uh, I agree with everything you say. And the only other thing I would say is that it's actually kind kind of helpful for your mental health too. And bear with me, but. I feel like for many of us, and I'm speaking in particular about like women because of how we're socialized in society to always, you know, deliver to these expectations of what we should be. Um, Not to say that men aren't either or other identities, but, you know, I'm speaking from my own experiences. I always felt that like every time I was in a job, I wanted to be perfect in every aspect of it, which was 
of course, impossible because I'm relying on other people's uh, expectations and in- interpretations of me, right? And you can't control that. You just can't control that, of course. But so much of my identity you know, when I was at school was about being a good student. When I became a professional, it was about being a good professional. You know, I hadn't really like evolved past that. And once I started pursuing other projects, it was a lot healthier for me to have like just more healthier boundaries with each of the things I was responsible for. Because instead of suddenly just how, instead of having just one thing that I obsessed over doing perfectly, I had more than one thing. And I knew that as a result of having more than one thing, I couldn't do all of those things perfectly. And it's almost like some kind of like release where I was just like, just doing my best is going to be okay. And I just don't Mm -hmm. know if anyone else can relate to that, but there's this sense of like, when you put all your eggs in one basket, you just almost obsess over that one basket obsessively unhealthily. But as soon as you have other income streams or other responsibilities, at least in my case, it's like I could relax and start to enjoy them and realize like, Oh, okay, this is pretty good. I don't need to go crazy over one of them. Michael and I thought it'd be really interesting to talk about abuses of power that are happening during COVID-19 because of the circumstances created by the pandemic, where many folks are in lockdown, a lot of people are unable to work. There have been a lot of reports that surfaced on the internet this week in particular, where journalists had spoken to tenants who were being sexually harassed by their landlords Mm. with regards to paying rent. So in one of the examples, a single mom, number of children, laid off from her job, made it very clear to her landlord that she was going to be in a tight spot financially. Her landlord was like, okay, well, don't bother with the rent if you fuck me. Now, this is so, it's so dark. It's like an episode of Black Mirror. It's just so horrible to see people abusing power in this way. But I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what power individuals can have to prevent this, because I, I see another demonstration of this, Michael, um, and, and just curious to hear your thoughts about how and why this is happening in particular. Research has come out now asking professionals to share their, their working hours. And, you know, this is a study that's conducted regularly, but what they found is since the pandemic started, Many countries in Europe, particularly UK, Ireland, Germany, France, workers are recording significantly longer periods of time uh, at work. And I just wonder, do you think this is down to companies, you know, abusing the fact that the people who are still left with a job are probably very desperate to keep it and just squeezing that extra juice out of them? Is it the fact that companies haven't adapted to remote life? So they're creating all these meetings that people don't need to be in that's eating up their day. What do you think is causing this change? So on the first thing about the landlords, um, there is nothing I can say to recommend to individuals who are, um, you know, who are tenants, because essentially it's like saying to somebody, oh, you've been assaulted. This is what you should have done to not get assaulted. Mm. The thing we should be saying is landlords don't be fucking pervy rapist Mm. or like sexual assault. That's what we should be saying to people. Like, because I can't give anybody any tips about how to not have a pervy landlord. I don't know what to say on that one, like, honestly. Um, And it's interesting because um, landlords as a class of people, are probably the most despised like class yeah. of people with the economic system already. Like I remember talking to an ex of mine and um, telling her, I was thinking about, you know, just investing in some property maybe one day. Like, wouldn't that be the dream, you know, so we can just like, you know, not have to work necessarily. And this person um, who I was seeing at the time was way to the left of me, like super, like every protest, every March, like, and she looked at me, like I just said, like, I want to work for a tobacco company. Like she was like, no, like, I don't want to be, you know, involved in any of that like by definition you are like a, an evil person for example which i don't agree with 
just don't say that. But like, I'm just saying like, the spectrum of opinion about landlords, um, how, how deep it can go to a lot of people. Right. And this type of stuff is why this type of stuff is like textbook example of like why people hate landlords. Um, exactly. And, and it's just sad. I mean, there's, um, I forgot what the exact word is. I think Naomi Klein, she's like a very famous author. I think she calls it disaster capitalism. When things go aw- awry, when things are messed up, there are certain forces that prey on people in this yes. time. So a lot of times it's government policy, but other times also it can be just individuals who are like, okay, what well, you're vulnerable now, time to pounce, right? Um, and this is a textbook example on a one-to-one level of this kind of disaster capitalism. How do we kind of, how do I prey on you? Now the, the company thing, um, yeah, I mean, listen, the one good thing about working in an office is that once you leave the office, people pretty much know that you're done. Unless you're an executive, that you know super high level where the people can text you and say oh we need to come back more times than not you leave the office there's a boundary bye bye like um and me and you have talked about this work-life balance with remote work full stop anyway like historically as somebody as some as people who do remote work before most people have done remote work um we know that this is, this is a hard full stop right um personally it's hard to stop working and then also it's hard to stop and turn off like the requests that you get on slack the emails that you might be getting the texts you might be getting right um so I don't think anybody set out with the intention of, well, let me squeeze my work for my, my employees. But I do think that the incentives are there that it was bound to happen, right? Oh, you're still at home. I know you're at home doing nothing. So let me just send you another email. Like, what are you, what are you really doing, right? So what yes. the sales time like, the 8, 7.30, 8.30? Employers will always want to get the most amount of juice from their employees. That's 100. that's history. That's facts. That's just, that's economic law. Um, <laughs> it, it just is like, um, I think we can just reiterate the things that we've said to people and to ourselves when we've done remote work, which is shut down your laptop. Yes. Try your best to enforce boundaries. Put your phone on, do not disturb. Let people know I'm shutting down and widening down at this time. Um, but what do you do when your employers are just not, your employee, employer, sorry, is not getting the hit and they're just like, this well, is the thing. Like, how do you do it? Because it's, it's new to them as well. So they don't necessarily know, you know, they're not used to you coming, coming up with these kind of boundaries. I don't know. Like, what do so you think? I, I, I think it ultimately comes down to being able to make a case for asynchronous working and ensuring that all the tools and resources are there for people to do it. Because the, the fundamental reason that, that flexible teams work effectively is because you're allowing people to work at whatever time makes sense for them. And that time doesn't always overlap. And I think what's going to happen is this basically awkward shift as people that were used to always being in an office together or mostly in an office together are now all working from home, but trying to recreate what they had in the office from home. And actually you're not really trying to recreate that. Are you? It's almost like you're building from the ground up once again. And you're saying, okay, so in the past we used to just come together in the meeting room. Maybe someone does a quick agenda on the whiteboard and then we all just hop into it. We can't do Mm. that anymore. So now we need to get better at creating documentation. We need to start using better cloud-based tools to collaborate between meetings or collaborate prior to a meeting or post a meeting. I think unless, unless teams do this work and create more structure and process and scalable process around sharing information and collaborating together, then there's going to be this awkward lag where loads and loads of teams are forced to work much longer hours as they all adjust to this new way of working. Do you know what I mean? Because I feel like if you think of companies that were remote first from the beginning, so let's say, for example, Basecamp, I mean, maybe Basecamp isn't the best example because they literally have built a collaboration tool that I'm sure they use. But, you know, maybe just taking like, okay, let's just say 
you know, Google or something like that, or even Product Hunt. I'll use Product Hunt since I, I worked there for a long time. You know, Product Hunt was always remote. So we have Slack set up. So, you know, there's a project channel for every Slack. You know, some Slacks even have more like templated ways of actually sharing information. And as long as you've shared your update by, you know, Sunday night for everyone to read on Monday, then like that's that's fine. And in a similar way, we used to use Quip Docs. So, you know, Quip Docs, just like Google Docs, literally like cloud-based word processing, Excel sheets, things like that. You know, we make a project brief that has to be done by a certain day, but then people have a certain number of days to read it. And then there'll be a project call. So there's a lot of asynchronous work happening by all the stakeholders in a project. And then there's only really ever one point in the whole week where we have to be online at the same time. And I think that was nice because it meant that I could work at the times that made sense for me. You know, everyone else can work at the times that make sense for them. The work is still getting done. Um, And I just fear that a lot of people, I mean, I even observe this just looking at my partner because he's working from home now. It's just like (laughs) call after call after call after call. I hate that shit. And then it's like, now I can do my emails or now I can do my to-do list. And it's just Mm. like, of course you're going to work longer hours like that because what, it's now 4 p.m. and you haven't had lunch and now you're getting to your to-do list. So you're probably going to be working another four or five hours today. So um, yeah, I just think if someone's out there and they're in that boat too, where they're like, holy moly, I'm doing so much. That's when you have to start pushing back and saying, does this really have to be a meeting? Or here are my thoughts in this doc about what the challenges are and how we should solve them. Why don't everyone else chime in with what they think is the best solution? And then when we get on a call, the call is to decide whose solution is the one we're going to go ahead with. You know what I mean? Right. Because you don't need a call to brainstorm. You don't need a call to come up with ideas. I come up with ideas best, you know, on my own, maybe with one other person. I don't know, but I don't need five people on a Zoom for that. I think it's difficult now because we're getting into like jobs and careers that don't necessarily make the most sense with remote work and what i mean by that okay. is that as a developer yeah you need deep work as a designer you need deep work like you need mm. long periods of silence where you're just focused on doing yeah but as work. a marketer too dude like you write copy no, 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 you know that copy doing. needs that deep yeah, work I, too I, I agree writers also fall in that remit you know uh, marketers also um but there are a lot of people that have jobs where their their thing is just to be like doing meetings being about in the office you know, yeah. um, liaison with people, connecting people of in the course. company, right? Whether, you know, the value of that work obviously is necessary, but like how valuable it is, I don't know. I've never had that, that type of job, right? Um, I'm not throwing shade, I'm just being honest. And what happens to those people when they do remote work? That might not even make sense anymore to have yeah. that kind of job. Or it might just be too exhausting because literally all you're going to do is just like be on Zoom call after Zoom call. So of course you're going to be like, oh my God, it's 6 p.m. and I haven't even started getting through what I wanted to do, right? Um. So does the, do those kind of roles have to be completely re-engineered? That's like- such a great question because there are people in organizations whose role it is to make themselves available to other people, whether that's through partnerships, whether that's through yes. you know internal bonds. And now, as you say, these are the people that are the most susceptible to Zoom fatigue or to being burnt out because they're constantly doing all of that work. So there's that whole like health piece around that as well. What I think is really interesting is kind of just going back again to what I was saying around this idea of if we're going to go into a fully flexible working world, we have to build from the ground up. So Mm -hmm. the idea of that role, like for argument's sake, let's say the role is, um, you know, community lead for a big Mm -hmm. 
a big design studio, right? So there's a lot of designers, a lot of engineers, and then you have one person in people operations whose job it is to bring that community together. I work with a lot of people in that role. There'll be the people that come up with the learning and development activities. There'll be the people that, you know, just build the culture and make sure everyone's having a great Mm -hmm. time. I was thinking like a lot of those people have probably had to adapt from like, oh, I can't just zip around the office anymore or like ask people out for a coffee or take them out for lunch. I've got to get them on a call and talk to them you know, maybe that role starts to look different. Maybe that role is like, you know, your touch points with people are less frequent or they look very different. Like some people, it is a Zoom call, but some people it's an old school phone call or some people it's you're doing an activity together. I think when we're trying to achieve the same things, we have to focus again on the desired outcome on the goal and the goal and then think about the best way to do them in the new constraints or the new challenges we have. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think it's like, uh, what's the first, what's the concept called? Like first principles thinking. And a lot, what we're doing now, we're taking existing jobs and just throwing them into a remote environment. We're actually now, we're going to have to think from the ground up what job actually makes sense. Well, that is it for this week's special mini episode of Techish, which is actually Extra-ish, the Patreon exclusive side of Techish. So make sure you guys subscribe on patreon.com slash techish. Michael and Abadesi will be back next week for your regular episode. Until then, please use the hashtag Techish. Join in on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Peace. Peace.